I'm Kara Miller. Just ahead on Innovation Hub, shortly after World War II, a man grew thousands of homes on Long Island potato fields. He knew that if he could produce homes that had eye appeal and utility, they would sell because the demand among uh, the GIs was enormous. Then making a baby could be a whole lot different one day. In 20 to 40 years, most babies born to people with good health coverage anywhere in the world will not have been conceived in bed or in the backseat of a car, but will have been conceived in a clinic. Plus, all those hours at the office, are they worth it? You know, we spend more time working probably than we do at anything else. And if you're not happy about what you're doing most of those hours, that's too bad. That's coming up next on Innovation Hub. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. The historian David Halberstam once wrote that if the first great business figure of the 20th century was Henry Ford, the second was a man named Bill Levitt. Levitt did something totally unglamorous. He bought up a piece of land in an area known for growing potatoes, Long Island. And in the late 1940s, he started to build small, affordable homes, homes that he knew returning veterans would want to buy. Louise Cassano's dad was a firefighter in Brooklyn when her cousins moved out to Long Island. That's when Cassano says her parents fell in love with the suburbs. They uh, saved up their $100 deposit to put down on the house. And actually, my mom had saved it without my dad even realizing what she was doing. She was kind of sneaking a few dollars here and there. Cassano and her family moved out to Levittown in 1951 when she was just a kid. And she's been there ever since. That generation really felt that owning their own home was the dream that they had uh, for their families, to be married, to have a family, and to be able to, to purchase their own home. You know, it wasn't specific to my parents. It was kind of the common thing that everybody worked toward and wanted to achieve uh, at that point in time. Bill Levitt watched the evolution of the American dream, and he knew he could capitalize on it. To meet demand, Levitt actually borrowed Ford's classic production technique, the assembly line. But since you can't really move a house down a conveyor belt, he moved the workers. At their height, Levitt's builders worked so quickly over the course of a week, they were averaging 16 minutes per house. And they built Levitt towns not just in New York, but also in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Maryland, and plenty of builders all over the country followed Levitt's lead. The suburbs have forever changed economics, politics, and culture. Lawrence Levy is the executive dean of Hofstra University's National Center for Suburban Studies, which is just a few miles away from Levittown on Long Island. He's also a former reporter for the Long Island newspaper Newsday. Larry, welcome to Innovation Hub. Well, thanks for having me. So how different was Levittown from what had come before? Very different. Uh, the suburbs, such as they existed, were hubs around uh, train stations hmm. where people almost entirely commuted to the city and the businesses out there supported uh, those folks. Uh, it was rural uh, economy with agriculture, timber, fishing, uh, except for the people who commuted into the cities. Hmm. Did he expect, do you think, the suburbs or Levittown to be as popular as it was? 
he was a great businessman. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had a dark side, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Mm-hmm. But he knew that if he could produce homes that had eye appeal and utility, they would sell because the demand among uh, the GIs was enormous, mm-hmm. and it was fed by government policies, the GI Bill, that made cheap loans and uh, subsidized rentals available on a scale we just had never seen before. So let me bring in again the voice of Louise Cassano that we uh, heard from earlier. Uh, she moved to Levittown, as I said, when she was just a kid uh, in the early 50s, but she has stayed there ever since. And at one point, she got to interview Bill Levitt, um, and she talked to us about how residents felt about the Levitt family. The Levitts were kind of treated like gods <laughs> in this community because because of the opportunity that so many people had to, for the first time in their lives, to own a home. And they did a wonderful job. When Levittown first started, the father, uh, Abraham Levitt, would go around and he would uh, check on everybody's shrubs, make sure that they were doing the right thing. And if they didn't, he'd knock on their door and say to them, you need to do this or you need to do that to <laughs> make things better. Or if people were not following the local ordinances of not hanging laundry out on a Sunday, he would knock on the door and say, you got, you know, you got to take the laundry down. It's today's Sunday. It's incredible to me that story she tells of like Abraham Lovett going around and being like, yep, you can't hang your wash out on Sundays or like that shrub is not up to code here. I mean, that on that micro level, it actually reminds me of uh, Ray Kroc and, and how he dealt with McDonald's and he would go around to McDonald's franchises and like pick up trash. I mean, he was the CEO. He didn't need to do that, but he did it. Well, Levitt did it in part because... He wanted it to conform to his vision, and he was a perfectionist. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was also a task master. Some people might use the expression anal retentive. Is that <laughs> un- improper for radio? <laughs> it's probably um, okay. Okay. But the fact is that he signed contracts with people, not only for a specific sized house at a specific price, but a lifestyle that would come with it. He right. promised there would be swimming pools yep. within yep. walking distance of every house. Right. He also promised it wouldn't look like New York City. And for some people, that was a code word or a dog whistle for don't worry, there won't be uh, people of color there. Huh. It also meant there's not going to be laundry. There's not going to be the kinds of things that people who didn't like city streets were right. trying to get away from. Right, right. It was not the tenements that That's people right. had lived in in the city. That's right. Do you think there were skeptics that thought, like, you're buying potato fields in Long Island. Nobody wants to live there. There's no way you're going to fill up a community this way. The only uh, concerns that people had when they moved out was, where are the jobs? Uh-huh. And how do they get to the ones that they want to keep that were based in the city? And Levittown was not directly on a Long Island Railroad line. Long Island Railroad is the largest commuter rail in the country. Mm-hmm. And you have to drive a little bit to get there. And that's one of the problems that Levittown created for 50 years after the fact. But during the time it was being sold, uh, every home had a car. Uh, thanks to Henry Ford, right, right. they were affordable they, as they well. They worked I mean, together. He, no, they, these things absolutely worked yeah, together. Yeah. And in fact, it wasn't one plus one. It was the synergy of one plus one equals three and four. So the men almost entirely mm. 
uh, either were driven to a train station by the wife mm-hmm. or they drove into the city and uh, the wife stayed home and took care of the kids. And on Saturday, they all piled into the station wagon and, and filled up on groceries. Uh, and that was the suburban way of life for many years uh, that fueled an economic boom that we hadn't seen for generations since the industrialization mm-hmm. of the North. And it was great. While it could last, mm-hmm. at least for white people, but it also, uh, 50 years later, when tastes changed, when the number of automobiles that households were buying was clogging streets, uh, when the lack of affordability in homes was forcing or at least uh, incentivizing owners to chop up their little Levitt homes into an extra apartment right. to bring in revenue, it leaves us with a lot of problems nowadays. I'm Kara Miller. This is Innovation Hub, and I'm talking with Larry Levy, the executive dean of Hofstra University's National Center for Suburban Studies. So I'm going to go back one more time to Louise Cassano from Levittown, and this is her talking about her sense of community when it came to diversity. Most of the people that originated in Levittown were um, white, Anglo-Saxons, <laughs> a, lot, a lot of Italians, a lot of Jews. And eventually, here and there, we started to see other cultures move into the community. Um, at first, they were so noticeable because they were so rare. But eventually, um, we started to see more and more uh, cultural changes. It was surprising at first um, because it was, it was such a white community. And those changes... Um, pleased some people and didn't please others. Uh, the New York Times once wrote that Levittown, uh, the houses there, were more than architectural creations. They were social creations. And what she's really talking about is like the creation of a certain kind of society. Why was that? Well, Levittown was a public-private partnership. I know we talk about that a lot, the three mm-hmm. Ps mm-hmm. for getting economic development going. But it was a partnership between a visionary business person and uh, government subsidies to make it happen. It was a suburban land of opportunity. The problem was it was only a land of opportunity for whites. It was not a matter of informal or personal racism by uh, this person or that person. It was written into the covenants, the lease and mortgage and deed agreements. And it took a United States Supreme Court decision, I believe in the 50s, Mm. that finally put an end to that. Mm. So, you know, it's not the same as other communities. And for all the good that Levittown did and all the vision it had, and you got to give them credit for that. It also sowed the seeds for a lot of problems down the road. Mm. Uh, Long Island, for instance, may be diversifying, but it is no less segregated than it was. Mm. And the seeds of that were planted back in the 40s and 50s Mm. and in shrined in law, Hmm. uh, or indeed, rather, in Levittown. To your point of the seeds, in some ways, for the lack of diversity, that those seeds were planted early on, Bill Levitt, who you mentioned, you know, had a little bit of a dark side, um, he once said, this is a quote from him, the Negroes in America are trying to do in 400 years what the Jews in the world have not wholly accomplished in 600 years. As a Jew, I have no room in my mind or heart for racial prejudice, but... I have come to know that if we sell one house to a Negro family, then 90 or 95% of our white customers will not buy into the community. That is their attitude, 
not ours. So there is somebody right sure. out there, like not sugarcoating <laughs> it, being like, this is the policy, as you said, and it was kind of written into it. Well, at minimum, you can say that Bill Levitt did not have the courage of what he claimed his convictions were mm-hmm. to take a financial and economic risk in trying something different. Um, is he right? Would 95% have stopped buying? Possibly, but not everybody would have. And if you don't give in to blockbusting and redlining and you don't cause panic and fear among owners where they stampede out and sell at a discount and slumlords buy up communities, if you take, make real efforts to keep that from happening, maybe it wouldn't have turned out as he uh, thought or feared it might. Well, what does it say to you? Um, and I mean, we're using Long Island as an example here, but but I'm guessing, and set me straight here if I'm wrong, we probably could be talking about lots of other parts of the country. I believe so. Uh, so what does it say to you that the suburbs have both gotten a lot more diverse, but then also are very, very segregated? I guess I just wonder what that says about Levitt's original vision that like really people don't want to live in the same neighborhood as people who aren't like them. Well... You know, there are debates going on about that. Um, Is there a degree of what is sometimes called self-segregation where a black family would prefer to live in a black neighborhood? I guess um, what we've seen a little bit more of, but not a lot, not nearly enough, is that if a black family does have money, there are more neighborhoods they can go into, but there are still plenty that they could afford where they can't realistically buy a home or feel welcome. Um, they can, but that you're saying they'd feel... Yeah, that's the whole... Le- welcome them. Okay. That, that's what I was referring to yeah. when I talked about Levittown. Mm. There are plenty of black families that can afford homes in Levittown. Mm-hmm. They choose not to. Mm-hmm. They choose not to go through uh, what some of them consider the gauntlet. Uh, you know, they there are ghosts in that community to them, you know, ghosts of racism and exclusion and, and really dashed dreams. Imagine you're a black soldier who risked his life for as many years and as many times as a white soldier, mm-hmm. and you can't get to live or even buy in most places in these new suburbs. Right. Imagine what that felt like. And imagine the impact of being excluded from economic opportunity and the much more rapid gain in value of those homes in the white communities in terms of how it affects family wealth for generations. Uh, Let's talk politics for a minute, because um, we live in a country where people often talk about there's a big rural-urban divide when it comes to how people vote. And it feels like this isn't really new, but it it sure feels like it's a moment of this being uh, thrust into the spotlight again when the suburbs are the battleground. So if there's a rural urban divide, what's right in the middle there and literally geographically, it is the suburbs. And it is often said it's the Pennsylvania suburbs, the Ohio suburbs that decide elections. I wonder, do you think that is going to continue? And just talk a little bit about the power of the suburbs in politics. Back when my parents moved out in 1955, Long Island was overwhelmingly Republican. Uh, Back when I started covering politics for Newsday in 1977, it was still overwhelmingly Republican Mm -hmm. with a slight shift. 
Okay. Nowadays, it is majority Democratic. Really? As the suburbs become more and more racially diverse, and if the Democrats continue to get huge levels of support from people of color, the suburbs are going to be counted more as the cities are, which are Democratic territory. So the swing areas are going to move a little farther out to what are now considered exurbs or outer ring. There have been books in the last few years, and I've talked to some of the authors here, um, called things like The End of the Suburbs and The Great Inversion, the idea being that the suburbs, you know, people in the suburbs were moving back into the city. Is there some truth to that? Is there something going on here, um, you know, that's new? Yes and no. There was a period, and in demographic history, it's a blip that tracked the Great Recession, where people were moving from the suburbs into the city. There was that inversion. But it's reversed. And more and more communities on Long Island, which used to be called the capital of nimbyism, and who knows, maybe it still is, not in my backyard <laughs> is. Yeah, right, exactly, right. right. Um, uh, more and more of these villages are embracing what we call smart growth or transit-oriented mm. development. And the more you see that happen, the more diverse you're going to see uh, the community's getting. You know, I think of the expression about the Samuel Clemens, uh, news of my death is premature. I think that people who are saying the suburbs died are really, uh, it's either wishful thinking or a misunderstanding of data or drawing conclusions on age and other cohorts, as we say in, in academia, that are too short to declare a new era. Lawrence Levy is the executive dean of Hofstra University's National Center for Suburban Studies. Larry, thank you so much. Well, thank you for letting me talk on and on and on. Little boxes on the hillside. Little boxes made of ticky-tacky. Little boxes on the hillside. Little boxes all the same. Levy says that when the 50th anniversary of Levittown rolled around in the late 1990s, the Smithsonian wanted a real, original Levittown house to put on display. The problem was that the standards for housing had changed so much in half a century, the average American house had more than doubled in size, that most Levittown houses had been expanded and changed. 20 years later, the Smithsonian is still on the hunt. And business executives, and they're all made out of ticky-tacky, and they all look just the When a book comes across your desk called The End of Sex, you tend to take a second look. This particular book is by Henry Greeley, a law professor at Stanford who doesn't actually argue that we're going to stop having sex, but that sex for reproduction's sake, that may be in its twilight years. And to be fair, it had a very good run. But the 21st century could mark the end of humans having kids the old-fashioned way. Hank Greeley is the author of The End of Sex and the Future of Human Reproduction. Hank, welcome. Thank you for having me on. So uh, let's talk about this idea of the end of sex, at least for, you know, reproduction purposes. To a lot of people, I think that's going to sound totally fantastical. What kind of timeline are you thinking about? So I make a bold prediction in the book that in 20 to 40 years, most babies born to people with good health coverage anywhere in the world 
will not have been conceived in bed or in the backseat of a car, but will have been <laughs> conceived in a clinic. And the reason they'll do that is to make a bunch of embryos. In the book, I use 100 as a rough estimate. Do a whole genome sequence. Look at all the DNA of each of those 100 embryos and then pick the one they want most, mainly the one they hope will be healthiest. Hmm. And we should say that to some degree, um, the idea of like having a baby in a lab, that's not the stuff of science fiction. Uh, that's already happening. Like if you have undergone in vitro fertilization, if you know somebody who has, it wasn't sex that allowed them to have a kid. It was a lab. Right. And that's actually one and a half percent of all the babies born in the U.S. in any given year are the result of in vitro fertilization. Hmm. Plus, you've got another uh, number, and we don't know quite how big this is, but probably another 1% or so, who are the result of artificial insemination, Mm -hmm. which, again, is not exactly the old-fashioned way of Mm -hmm. sex. Mm -hmm. So it's not new, but I think it's going to go from about 2 to 3% of births to over 50% of births in, as I say, 20 to 40 years. Hmm. In some ways, it feels like, you know, people talked about the sexual revolution in the 60s and that the introduction of the pill allowed people to move from having sex largely for reproduction to having sex sometimes for reproduction. And, and I feel like this is the end of it, you know, having sex almost never for reproduction. Having sex frequently, but almost never for reproduction, right, I right, think, right. is where the future is likely to go. right. So right now, we have the capability of determining all sorts of things, uh, rare genetic diseases like Huntington's disease or the existence of mutations like um, the BRCA1 and 2 genes that increase your risk for breast cancer. So why isn't everybody right now uh, testing for those things? Two reasons, cost and inconvenience. So the cost of doing whole genome sequencing, of looking for all of these different genes is still pretty high. Mm -hmm. Uh, To do it at a rate of accuracy that you'd be comfortable making medical decisions Mm -hmm. from is maybe five to $6,000. Now, it used to be half a billion dollars 15 years ago, Mm -hmm. and it was $50,000 eight years ago. So it's now down to about $5,000. That's going to get lower. So it'll be cheaper to test not just for one or two things or five or six things, but to test for everything that your genome can tell you about that embryo, Hmm. whether it's diseases, whether it's cosmetic traits, whether it's a little bit of information about future behavior, and whether it's a boy or a girl. Hmm. But the other problem, and I think the more serious rate-limiting issue here, is that to do pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, you've got to do in vitro fertilization. Because you have to have that embryo at day somewhere between three and six So you can take some cells off of it and test them. If you get pregnant the old-fashioned way, if you conceive the old-fashioned way, at day three through six, that embryo is halfway down one of the two fallopian tubes. Good luck finding it. Mm. So you need IVF in order to know where the embryo is, in order to be able to test it. And IVF is a pain. Yeah. It's expensive. It's literally painful, right? I mean, I I know people have been through it, and it's literally very unpleasant thing to do. So I got to say, this is one of those areas where life is deeply unfair. It's not so unpleasant for the guy. Mm -hmm. Providing a sperm sample, usually not unpleasant or risky. But for the woman, uh, what you have to go through to ripen lots of eggs and then Mm -hmm. have them harvested is weeks and weeks of shots, mood swings, cramps, 
And there's even some physical risk. About half of 1% of women who go through egg harvest, egg retrieval in any given year, end up hospitalized as a result. Mm -hmm. And it's expensive and usually not covered by insurance. So all those things, since you have to do IVF in order to do this pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, that's going to hold back pre-implantation genetic diagnosis until sometime in the next 20 to 40 years. The second big technological change my book foresees comes through. One is cheap whole genome sequencing, but the second one is making eggs and sperm when necessary from skin cells. Hmm. We can take skin cells and turn them into what are called induced pluripotent stem cells. They're kind of like those human embryonic stem cells, which have been so famous and controversial, but they're not made from embryos. They're made from living people's skin. And then you can try to turn those into brain cells, kidney cells, liver cells, heart cells, and eggs and sperm. Okay, so is what you're saying that people are going to be able to go into a lab, your two, you know, partners in this relationship who want to have a kid, you're going to be able to go into a lab, and they're going to be able to scrape some skin cells off of you and turn it into egg or sperm? It, they won't scrape it so much. They'll do a two-millimeter punch biopsy. They'll take a little circular bit of your skin out, so small that you just need a Band-Aid okay. to cover it up. And if you were a mouse, we could do this today. It's already been done in mice, both with eggs and sperm. No one has taken it that far with humans yet. People haven't made fully mature eggs or sperm from humans, but they're moving in that direction. And when do you think that this is going to be feasible and we're going to be able to do this? Sometime, in, well, it depends on, on how much effort is put behind it and mm-hmm. also on what countries' regulatory schemes look like. Right. I think scientifically you could probably get there with humans within the next five to ten years. Huh. I also think, and I deeply believe this, It'll take another 10 years of safety testing Mm -hmm. because you really want to make sure that making eggs this way leads to healthy babies. If you rush into a way of making eggs that turns out to make 10% of the babies seriously disabled, that's an awful thing. Mm -hmm. So one reason I set my prediction 20 to 40 years into the future was because I think it'll take at least a decade or more of safety testing before anyone should be willing to try this and before the FDA or any FDA equivalent in other countries should be willing to approve it. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Hank Greeley, a professor of law at Stanford and the author of The End of Sex and the Future of Human Reproduction. So let's get into some of the potential controversies here. Um, You talked about the expense attached to, like, genome sequencing. Obviously, we've seen that come way down from millions of dollars to, you know, well under $10,000 now. Are you worried that even if the cost comes down to $1,000 to $500, that we are entering into a world where you've got this sort of bifurcation? People who are like, yep, I've got... I saved up my $1,000 to get my test, and I'm going to be really careful here, and I want to make sure that my child is optimized to, you know, be successful. And people who don't have the money or just sort of don't think about things in that way and and just have sex, and they have children a different way, and then you slowly kind of bifurcate these two groups of people. I think that is a real and important concern Maybe the biggest concern about this is its effects on fairness between different human groups. 
On the other hand, and this is really important, this is embryo selection. This is picking one out of 100 embryos that two people make. Mm -hmm. All you can get from an embryo from two people is what those two people have to give it. We're not talking about super babies or designer babies here. We don't even know what genetic variations exist for super babies. We know a lot of genetic variations that cause very low intelligence. We don't know anything about variations that cause higher than average intelligence. So the babies will be healthier. They're not going to be a different species. They'll be, my guess is, 10 to 15 percent healthier. Adding that onto the already health differentials between rich babies and poor babies would right. be a bad thing. Right, right. But it's not going to be a speciation event. We're not going to turn into two different human species. However, I am an optimist. I think people will be rational enough that ultimately, not at the very beginning, but after a few years, this will be free for parents. Hmm. And I don't actually think that's going to be because everyone says, well, for reasons of equity and fairness and justice, we need to make it free. I think there'll be a much more compelling reason. It's going to make health care cheaper. When people, when we get to the point where people are routinely having embryos tested before uh, they're implanted and they're not, you know, having kids the old-fashioned way, what are the ethical issues that you worry about, that you think might arise, be they political, religious, whatever they are, what sort of gets in the back of your head and, and won't, won't go away? So let me give two answers to that. The five categories of issues I thought were important enough to cover in depth in the book were safety, which is a real ethical issue and not just a medical issue. It's unethical to do unsafe things, especially to babies who never consented to it. It's fairness. We've touched a little bit on the economic fairness, mm -hmm. but what happens if too many parents want boys and not enough want girls? There are fairness issues there. Yeah. And what happens, and to me this may be the actual hardest question, what about fairness to people who already have been born with genetic diseases or people who are among the few who are born with them in the future? If you've got, say, Down syndrome and there aren't very many more Down syndrome babies being born, mm -hmm. that affects how much research is going into mm -hmm. your condition and how mm -hmm. many doctors know how to help you mm -hmm. and how much social support you have, mm -hmm. as well as telling you the society thinks you probably shouldn't have been born. I think those disability issues are huge. I think there are big issues of coercion. Should governments, insurers, mothers-in-law, fathers-in-law, husbands yeah. be able to forced decisions. There are right. big issues about family structure. I mean, the gay and lesbian genetic parents are only one small part of it. If you could make eggs from a 50-year-old woman, you could make eggs from an 80-year-old woman, you could make eggs from an 8-year-old girl, you could make eggs from an 8-week-old embryo, mm -hmm. or from a woman who's been dead for 8 years whose cells were carefully frozen. Mm -hmm. You could get some very strange family structures then. Plus, even in a more conventional family structure, how does it change things when parents say, hey, I picked you because your genes look like you're going to be a great NFL quarterback, mm -hmm. and you say you want to be a poet? Already, <laughs> you know, parents put <laughs> the expectations on kids. The plan has already been kids. written. Sorry. Right. But the last of the five, so safety, fairness, coercion, family structure, family issues— the last one, I think, is politically the most important, although intellectually I don't find it very powerful. And that's just, um, it's not natural. 
it's not what God intended. Right. It's not the way we've done always done things. Yeah, so there's a, a religious version of it, which is that's playing God. And there's a more secular version of it that that's not natural. Mm-hmm. I think that will be very strong with a lot of people. And even in 50 years, I don't think every couple will want to make their babies this way. Mm-hmm. Some will either for religious purposes, philosophical purposes, romantic purposes. And it's so much more romantic to just roll the dice. Or because they're teenagers and getting pregnant in the backseat of cars is what they do. <laughs> Not everybody is going to do this, Um, and I'm okay with that. But I do think there will be political opposition to it today. How powerful that opposition will be will vary from country to country. Hmm. In East Asia, I don't think it will be very strong. In the United States, I think there will be some of it, particularly in some more conservative states. But overall, we'll let parents do what they want to do to get healthier babies. Hmm. The Vatican City, not likely to legalize this anytime soon. So there'll be a lot of variation. But I think the main argument won't be the arguments I, th- I take most seriously, the safety, the uh, fairness, the coercion arguments. It'll be these arguments about naturalness. And I just have to say there's nothing particularly natural about you and me talking to each other 2,500 miles <laughs> apart And then having it broadcast to people all over the world on radio and on the Internet. There's not much about our lives that's natural. So you got to say more than it's not natural because there are damn few humans out of the 7.3 billion of us who live natural lives. Even agriculture isn't really natural. Since your timeline is, you know, 40 years in the future that you think, you know, people are going to be sort of having babies in labs, why should people now who that's not part of their lives, that's not how they're going to have their children. Why should they care about this right now? Sometime in the next 20 to 40 years, this is going to happen. It's going to change how we have babies. It's going to change the world that all of us live in. It's not necessarily going to change my life because I may well not be here then, but it'll change the lives of my children, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren, the children of my friends and relatives, It's important, and I do the work I do in the hopes that if we think about and worry about the implications of new technologies early enough and well enough, we are less likely to create catastrophes. I used to say we could maximize the benefits and minimize the harms, and I realized that was way too optimistic. (laughs) But I do think if we talk about it, we argue about it, we debate it, we study it, we're less likely to have catastrophic failures And avoiding a few catastrophes, particularly when it comes to how we have babies, is, I think, a worthwhile goal. Hank Greeley is the author of The End of Sex and the Future of Human Reproduction. He's also the director of the Center for Law and the Biosciences at Stanford. Hank, thanks so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. We've got more of Hank Greeley's work on our website, innovationhub.org, and more about what can be tested for right now in embryos. Greeley says that he believes that many of the political stumbling blocks to the widespread use of labs to make babies may not turn out to be quite the stumbling blocks that you'd assume. As the technology is refined, he says, it will likely first be approved for couples who are infertile. And once it's out there, doctors can deploy it for a much broader range of people.
There are these two ideas that, to some degree, I think, a lot of us believe. One is, you can't really put a price on happiness. And the other is, if you had just a little more money, you'd be a lot happier. The economist Robert Frank has spent years trying to figure out how money and happiness intersect when it comes to your job. He's a professor at Cornell and a contributor to The New York Times, and he says this is something that you actually can calculate. I asked him when experts started trying to figure out the value of getting the right job for you. Oh, this is a very old device in economics. It goes back at least as far as Adam Smith, which means nobody knows how much further back it could go. Uh, you can look at, at uh, people who are similarly situated uh, in jobs, for example. Maybe one job is just like another, except that it's riskier. You're more likely to die if you take the first job. Most people don't like exposure to risk, and so why would you take the risky job if somebody were offering the, the safer one at the same pay? So the only way they can right. fill the riskier job is to offer a premium uh, in pay, and, and the economists exploit that observation by saying, well, we'll look at how much extra you get paid for each one in a thousand probability of dying on the job each year and make an right. estimate of the statistical value of a life by doing that. And, and that same technique can be applied to just about any kind of job characteristic that people care about. You know, uh, the Gallup organization uh, fairly often will try to get a sense of how Americans feel about their jobs. Um, and something like, it depends on the year, but something like 30% of Americans say, yes, I feel engaged at work. When you read that 30%, I don't know how that sounds to you, but that sounds terrible to me. So what's going on that 70% of people presumably are saying, yeah, I don't really feel that engaged with the, the thing I do every day? That's uh, probably accurate, it strikes me, just from my own uh, familiarity with that literature. And it's also, as, as you suggest, a sad statistic. You know, we spend more time working probably than we do at anything else. And right. if, you're, if you're not happy about what you're doing most of those hours, that's too bad. Uh, may, maybe that's inevitable. Maybe, maybe the choices you face don't permit a better outcome than that. But uh, in a surprising number of cases, there are better options. What are we doing wrong that we have those kinds of numbers? I mean, how, how would you uh, flip them? How would you get it to the point where 70 percent of people are happy with their jobs? Uh, I teach MBAs. Uh, that's my job. And they confront this kind of decision in a very dramatic way. They go out into the job market. They do interviews. They get offered different positions. And uh, it's hard to compare different jobs. There are probably 100 characteristics of any job that people might in principle right. care about. And the one that's easier to observe than any other is how much are they going to pay you? And so I think the tendency, uh, both for prestige reasons, both for uh, uh, an inflated sense of how important money is for your ability to lead a happy life, for a variety of other reasons, people 
in that part of the job market at least, focus too much on which one offers me the most money and don't think quite enough about the other characteristics that go along with that job. And so I try to tell my students, look, if they're paying you way more uh, than you expected to get, ask yourself, what is it exactly they want you to do? Maybe they mm. want you to do something that most people don't like to do. Right. They're, they're, they're giving you some hardship pay. You have to figure out what the hardship is. Yeah. What's the catch here? That's right. The, and there usually is one. When, uh, when you think about students that you've had in the past and that maybe you kept up with and you were able to talk to after they took that initial job or two, did they often come back to you and say something like, boy, I took the whatever, $200,000 a year job, not the $150,000 a year, and I, I made a mistake? Or what do they say to you? Yeah, I often do hear that. Uh, in the MBA job market, the temptations are to go into investment banking or consulting. Those are the two fields that pay the most. And often students come back and say, I did it for five years, but I just couldn't do it any longer. It was just uh, the hours, the travel, the constant sense of burnout were just more than I and my family could could tolerate. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I've switched to some other thing. And, and they often report, wow, that was a big eye-opener when they, they saw how much nicer it felt to come home at the end of the day, feeling like you'd done something you actually felt proud of doing. You talk about an experiment that you did, I think, at Cornell with students looking at two very similar jobs, um, sort of writing essentially message or advertising copy, one for the American Cancer Society um, and one working on behalf of tobacco companies, essentially. Right. Talk about that experiment and what it told you about what people are willing to do for money. Uh, th this was a question I posed to a group of graduating seniors at Cornell some years back. Uh, the jobs paid the same. The offices were the same. They had the same travel budgets. Assume all this. Uh, in one case, you're writing copy for an ad campaign aimed at discouraging teenagers from starting to smoke. That's the American Cancer Society job. Uh, and then the Tobacco Institute job was to write ad copy for a campaign encouraging teenagers to smoke. Which job would you take if they both paid the same? Well, not surprisingly, 90-plus uh, percent of the, the respondents said, oh, they would pick the anti-tobacco ad copywriting job. Right. Then I asked them, all right, now imagine that the tobacco job, pro-tobacco job, was paying you a premium if you'd switch to their office. How much would the premium have to be? And the average premium that people reported was in the order of 80 percent over the salary that they were earning at the Cancer Society job. So, you know, it's a, it's a non-trivial number. You know, right. you could say it's just cheap talk. What would people do if they actually faced uh, right, a choice right. like that, if they had bills to pay? But, you know, we can look to the labor market uh, and, and we can see uh, the, the Harvard and Yale law grads who were on law review. Those are uh, they could take any job in the legal field they want. Uh, the very best of them split. Uh, some of them go to the big corporate firms, mostly in New York City. They, they earn huge salaries. Others take public interest jobs like American Civil Liberties Union, also in New York huh. City, where they earn about a third as much as they would earn in the private law firm mm -hmm. jobs. And it's not that they're not as good. Uh, it's not that the hours aren't long in both jobs. They are. 
but when they go home at the end of the day, they, they feel like apparently it was worth it to take the big put, cut and pay just to be able to say, I felt good about what I was doing all day. Does it matter in absolute terms how much money you make, or does it matter how much money you make in terms of happiness in comparison to how much the guy down the street makes? Like, do, do you, you know, if you're making a ton of money, but the people on both sides of you are making even more money, do you feel, still feel kind of unhappy because you're, you know, <laughs> yeah. by comparison, yeah, this, the poor guy on the block? This is a question I've studied for almost my entire career, and, and the clear answer is that context matters enormously. Uh, I, I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Nepal uh, fresh out of college. I lived in a two-room house. It, it didn't have any electricity or plumbing. Never once during the two years I lived in it did it seem in any way unsatisfactory. You know, I was proud to have colleagues over. It was a totally satisfactory house in that context. Uh, but if I lived in a house like that here in Ithaca, which isn't a, a high roller town, uh, you know, I would I would feel embarrassed about the fact my kids wouldn't have yeah. wanted their friends to see where we lived. Uh, it would have right, been right, un right. unacceptable. So, yeah, yes, context matters a great deal, but so does absolute income matter. If you had a choice between live, if you were going to be in the middle of the distribution in a rich country or a poor country, uh, you'd have good reasons to think it might be a better choice to go to the rich country. You'd live longer there. The air would be cleaner. There'd be less noise. There would be better water. The jobs would be more interesting. So having economic progress isn't an empty thing. Uh, uh, good things happen when, when incomes grow higher. But, but, yeah, you ought to be willing to trade some of your income in favor of a, 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 a better context. Well, it explains in some ways why so many Americans think they are middle class. Even if they are not necessarily middle class, they may be, you know, in a lower class, they may be in a higher class. But um, generally people live around people like them. So you might be a very rich person right. and you live in the middle of San Francisco, but everybody around right. you is so much richer. Right. It feels like you're middle class. Yeah, and, and in, in the most meaningful sense, you are. Uh, you have a peer group. Uh, you know, it, it doesn't yeah, matter yeah. how smart you are relative to people on some other planet. You're not competing right, with right, them. Right. So it's the local environment that really is your frame of reference for everything important to you or almost everything important to you. So if you're at the bottom of that group, then that, that's a, a reason to be concerned. How am I doing? Well, I'm not doing very well. Uh, if you're at the top of that group, whatever the group happens to be, then you feel like, hey, uh, life's, life's going okay for me. So you know, most people are in the middle of whatever group they're in. Do you find that uh, having money um, gives you the ability, you know, maybe from your parents or whatever, gives you the ability to be happier in the end because you're able to, let's say, make a career shift in the middle somewhere, you know, go back to school, do the kind of thing that somebody who didn't have that kind of money could not draw on wealthy parents, um, you know, you can do that. They can't. Yeah. Yeah. There are some clear advantages to having money, but it's uh, got a downside, too. Uh, I was adopted as an infant. Uh, I later met my uh, birth mother's family, lovely old New England family with uh, a, a fairly large uh, amount of wealth that had been path, passed down through the generations in it. And uh, it, it struck me that if I had grown up in that family and knew that I had a, 
a trust fund coming my way in my 20s or 30s, uh, would I have taken the steps I took to develop a career for myself? Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm really quite skeptical that I would have. You know, I yeah. would have found it very easy to say, I'll work on that tomorrow uh, and, and continue to do what's most most fun for me to do today. There, there's a great piece. Uh, Warren Buffett's son wrote, uh, wrote an essay. It, it was uh, on NPR some years back. Uh, expressing his deep gratitude for the fact that his father had made it clear to him early on that he wouldn't be inheriting a big pile of money from his father. Huh. Uh, he, he has carved out just a wonderfully satisfying niche for himself uh, in the artistic domain. Uh, and uh, I think rich parents, if they haven't uh, seen a similar testimony uh, on that subject, would, would do very well to go and read that that essay and, and think about what posture to strike vis-a-vis -vis their own kids and, and inheritance. Robert Frank is a professor of economics at Cornell. He's the author of an article on the value of a job in the New York Times. We will link to it at our website, innovationhub.org. Robert, thank you so much for your time. Kara, what a pleasure. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Sollinger and Mark Filipino, and engineer Doug Sugertz. We also had production help from Alec Graney and Rowena Lindsay. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI, Public Radio International.